Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. It's March, and you know what that means. It's time for March Mammal Madness. This week we preview the upcoming bracket, which starts in just a few days, but we also check out some interesting stories and latest scientific research that relates to some of the competitors in this bracket, whether that be the tardigrade or some of our antecessors. We dig into more this week's episode. It's March, and you know what that means. No, not spring or autumn, depending on which side of the world you're on. No, no, it's something much more important than that. Much more important than that, in fact. Yes, it's time for March Madness, but really not the one involving hoops and balls and teams of different universities facing off against each other. That's boring. Here at Lagrange Point, we celebrate the only March Madness that matters. March Mammal Madness, which is entering now its sixth year. And this tournament that we've covered for the last couple of years is entering a new era with a very exciting new format. So this week, we're going to preview the tournament, which starts on March the 12th in the United States, and will continue for the remainder of the month. So what exactly is Mammal March Madness? The quick recap is basically, it's performance science. It's a way to educate people about different kinds of animals from across the world and how they interact with each other. They face off in a tournament format, starting in four different divisions of 16, and working their way through the levels to the final raw, the final form, as well as the final battles. In the final itself. Now, how it works is the scientists use actual data based on academic studies of interactions between the animals, or the like animals if they've never interacted before, or perhaps they use environmental factors, existing research, a number of other methods to explore what would happen if these two animals meet up in real life. That is to say, no animals were harmed in the making of this event. This tournament is put together by the editor-in-chief and founder of this tournament, Dr. Katie Hind, as well as her deputy editor-in-chief, Chris Anderson. And they work with a lot of different battle narrators, people who put all the science together and then tweet them out in the hashtag 2018MMM. And this includes Joshua Drew from Columbia University, Mauna Dasari, PhD student at University of Notre Dame, Dr. Mark Kessel, Dr. Patrice Kenneth-Connors, Dr. Jessica Light, as well as many others from a variety of new universities, such as Dr. Lara Djokovic from Harvard, Dr. Anne Hilburn from Virginia Tech, Asia Murphy of Penn State, and Dr. Tara Chestnut of the Mount Rainier National Park. Now, it's not just all dry science as well. It actually involves a lot of art, thanks to the lovely scientific illustrator, Sharon Henning, as well as a new artist this year as well, Mary Casillas, not to mention all the fan art that gets produced by the various accounts. It's not just nerdy scientists and labs getting involved here. It's actually a great tool for educators and classrooms, all the way from primary school up to college students, to learn more about different species. And there are numerous educators across the world getting involved in it. And some great radio and print coverage from across the world. So if you want to get involved, there's still time. It doesn't begin at least the first wildcard bout till tomorrow. That's is at the time of the recording. And there's also time to get your brackets in before the first round starts, when the first round starts on March 14th. Now all you need to do to follow along is to check out the hashtag on Twitter, 2018MMM. Go to the website mammalsuck.blogspot.com.au for all the write-ups, or check out even the Facebook page as well, where you'll get recaps, summaries, 
as well as to follow the live trash talk from all the various competitors. And if you don't fill out a bracket or your bracket gets busted early on, fear not, you can still be involved in following how the madness pans out. Now, what animals are involved in this year's tournament? Well, it's been a bit of a format change, and so to speak, this is Mammal March Madness after all. And we have a whole bunch of mammals who have really interesting and unusual adaptions in the Great Adaptions category. We've got the urban jungle, which is animals and mammals in particular that are really adapted to specific urban environments. But there's been a slight change. Now, in the past, we've had mythical creatures be involved in this. We've also had a bunch of other strange animals as well. But this year, we have two unusual categories that push the definition of what a mammal is. First, we have the Antisuses category, which goes all the way up the evolutionary tree of mammals. The Synapsids and the Thoracids are groups of animals, which are actually the Antises. They are from a period of time before mammals had actually developed. And if you trace all the way up the mammal tree, past the mammal crown group, the group that groups all mammals together, then you get to these two brackets. And these groups of creatures were around from the mid-Triassic and onwards. And that's one of the interesting parts, because they have a lot in common with mammals. Some even have very much in common with some of the monotremes, the egg-laying mammals, like the platypus. In fact, some were very similar, like looking at the earlier synapsids. But they were part of our mammal history, and this Antessa category is why they are featured in March Mammal Madness. They're mammals, or rather they were the precursors for mammals. They may not have all had all the mammal features that we know and love today, such as the ability to feed young via milk, the giving birth to live young, and so on and so forth. But they had some of these features, or had the groundwork which would become those features. So that's why they're being featured in this bracket. It's an interesting way to cast light back on an early period of evolutionary history. Now, on the other side of it, there is another group, which are the alt mammals. In the world of fake news and strange happenings, alt mammals have managed to make their way into the bracket. As you suspect, these are not mammals at all, at least in the traditional sense of a mammal. In fact, they're basically inverse mammals. We're talking like the secretary bird, the snapping turtle, creatures that would have otherwise never had any prominence in mammal March Mammal Madness before, but given that many of the scientists actually involved in this tournament don't study mammals at all, it was time that they were given a chance to shine for themselves. Now for full disclosure, we here at Lagrange Point have filled out brackets, and we're split between two creatures, the cheetah and, with Australian pride, the Tasmanian devil. So we'll see what happens here, but on our end we at least are trying to support the home team. Now, one of the most entertaining entrants in this year's Mammal March Madness is, of course, the tardigrade. Now, a tardigrade, otherwise known as a water bear, maybe even a moss piglet, is a small, water-dwelling, eight-legged, segmented microanimal. Looks a bit like a centipede, or some people describe it as looking like a bear, hence the water bear. And they're around 0.5 of a millimetre in length. And what makes them so interesting? is that they can be found almost anywhere. 
Now, there's a lot of different types of tardigrades, over a thousand, and they've been around for a very long time, over 530 million years ago, dating back to the Cambrian period. And what's so amazing about them is that they're incredibly resilient, can live for incredibly long periods of time, are very, very resilient, and can survive extreme conditions that would be fatal to nearly every other form of life. Whether it be extreme temperatures to extreme pressures, both high and low, lack of air, radiation, dehydration, starvation, you name it, it tends to survive. And tardigrades have been very easy for, to observe since they're about 0.5 millimeters in size. You can look at them with a low-powered microscope, which makes them a great thing for researchers, young and old, to have a look at. We've known about them since... German zoologist Johann Augustus Ephraim Goethe discovered them in 1773. And the name Tardigrada actually comes from the Italian word from an Italian biologist meaning slow stepper. Now look, they mostly just eat plant cells, algae and other small invertebrates, but they're just so hardy and so well found across the world that it makes them obviously a pretty fierce competitor in Mammal March Madness. If you've watched Star Trek Discovery, Hopefully I'm not spoiling too much of Season 1, but let's say tardigrades feature quite prominently in providing a new form of space propulsion. But coming back down to Earth, and looking specifically in Japan, there's actually been some recent research published in the Open Access Journal PLOS One by Daniel Steck. Daniel is a researcher from Jalilion University in Poland. Working together with his colleagues, they have discovered a whole brand new species of tardigrade from Japan. Now, look, as we know, tardigrades are found all over the world, and there were 167 known species from Japan itself. Now, these researchers collected a sample of moss from a car park in Japan, as you do, and they examined it for what they could find for life. And unsurprisingly, they found a lot of tardigrades. Ten different individuals from that particular sample were found, which they sent to a lab and they tried to categorise them. They then used as a starting point to go hunt for more tardigrades. And what was interesting about the samples they collected is that they then chucked them all into light microscopy and then scanning electron microscopy. They also analysed the DNA for four markers because what they were trying to do is use phylogenetic analysis to pick which tree in the animal kingdom it belongs to. Now, how you tell between tardigrade species, aside from checking the DNA, is you also pay attention to the eggs. And the egg surface can tell you a lot about the species. For example, this new species that they discovered has a solid egg surface, which puts it into a different group to many of the other ones currently classified, or at least for Japan. And the eggs themselves have flexible filaments attached to them, which resembles, actually, some already described species of tardigrade from Africa and from South America. Which is very, very interesting to think how a tardigrade in Japan ended up with similarities to ones from literally the other corners of the world. So the phylogenetic and morphological analysis of the species that they discovered actually shows that, yeah, it is a new species, bringing Japan's total of tardigrades species up to 168. And that's particularly fascinating, because when you think about it, these little tiny creatures are so numerous and so diverse, but also incredibly well-traveled. That's one of the reasons why I have them going far, surprisingly, in 2018 March Mammal Madness. But it just goes to show that even in these little critters, there's still a lot to learn.
Now, although the categories for Mammal March Madness this year includes the Antithesis category, it doesn't go all the way back to 400 million years ago. That's the period of the Devonian when actually we started to see the first land creatures walking on land as fish left the oceans and started to make their way onto the surface. And one of those first early transition fish was of course the lungfish. And these air-breathing fish have a continuous fossil record dating back all that near 400 million years, which makes them a fascinating thing to study, particularly when you want to look at the development of certain types and features that enabled creatures to survive and flourish on land. Now, lungfish are members of an ancient group of lobe-finned fishes, which are known as the class Dipnoi. And as I said, they go back all the way to the Devonian period about 400 million years ago. Now, that group of creatures then branches and branches and branches, and that's how we end up with the synipsids, therapsids, and so on, all the way down to class Mammalia that we'd be familiar with. But they had proto-lungs and proto-limbs, these lungfish, and we can actually study lungfish that are around today. And that's what a group of scientists from Britain and Brazil, they study the South American lungfish, the Lapidosa and Paradoxa. And by looking at some pretty interesting characteristics for the way their hearts work, to try and ascertain the development of certain features that make creatures like mammals so successful today. Now, the lead author of the study was Diana A. Montieri, together with Edwin Taylor, Marina Satori, Andrea Cruz, Francisco Ratin, and Cleo Liete. And what they were studying is the way in which the lungfish's heart actually helps regulate and process the amount of air and oxygen it brings in. So mammals, in case you're not aware, we have an increase in our heart rate when we breathe in and a decrease when you breathe out. This cardiorespiratory process is known as respiratory sinus arrhythmia, pretty much sorted into RSA. This is a pretty straightforward process, but it's basically because our hearts are trying to pump and process all that air coming in from our lungs making sure we get that oxygen out from our lungs and across to the rest of our body. And it's one of the underlying control mechanisms that have considered to be, by many scientists, basically a mammalian process. It's something that us mammals have that makes us better than all those other creatures. But this team of scientists actually looked at the South American lungfish to try and dig into, do other creatures seem to possess this? And given that lungfish have a continuous fossil record dating back hundreds of millions of years, they're a good way to see if this adaptation that mammals have is actually one that many creatures from that period actually did. And what they found is that the lungfish actually do share a periodic breathing pattern that lines up with terrestrial vertebrates. When it rises to the water's surface at regular intervals, it ventilates its lungs, pretty much like a normal lung-like air-breathing organ. And it then depends on these lungs for oxygen uptake during, let's say, a drought. So when these lungfish gulp in the air when they're sitting at the water surface, their heart rate instantly increases, signalling to them a diversion of blood to the creature's lungs. Basically, the same thing we do. Now, one of the reasons why this happens for lungfish, as opposed to many other creatures, and fish in particular, is that, well, they have an undivided heart, which enables the proportion of blood diverted to the lungs to be varied, unlike us humans or mammals, which have a divided heart with separate cavities, which enables us to pump slightly differently. If you see the beating picture of the heart, you'll see the chambers moving in different patterns sometimes. Now, what the lungfish is doing then, 
by increasing the amount of blood it's pumping through the heart when it breathes in. It's pretty trying to much do the same thing that we do when we increase our heart rate with RSA when we breathe in. Get more oxygen into our lungs and thus spread across our body. Which means that these lungfish have this really complex control mechanism which helps them respirate and change their heart rate accordingly. And since this is a pretty consistent feature going back in lungfish, it suggests that lungfish actually are one of the sources of that mechanism. Now, that's not to say that maybe there was some parallel evolution here and the mammals evolved it separately, but it does suggest that if you can see it in a fish with a proven genetical lineage all the way back 400 million years, chances are that some of these primitive mechanisms that we thought were just amazing adaptions of only mammals actually have a much longer and more complicated history than we thought. Perhaps we owe some of these features to the lungfish. And that's certainly the work that this research from the University of Birmingham and the Federal University of Sao Carlos in San Paulo have published in the journal Science Advances. And it just goes to show that we owe a lot to our mammalian ancestors and also to our other ancestors, where we as a species have developed from. We carry with them all that evolutionary history to get to where we are today. And that's also what our fellow species on this planet carry too. So it's easy to think that just because mammals are in the ascendancy, at least for most land creatures, that that's because they owe it to some special development that they had. And sometimes that can ignore some of the other amazing developments had by species across the planet. So this is some great work being done at the University of Birmingham and the Federal University of Sao Carlos. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, The Grange Point. Where we found out about March Mammal Madness, and we also found out about some amazing new research about Japanese tardigrades, and what connects the lungfish with the development of lungs in mammals. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.